Welcome back to the program. Our mission statement as a country tells us we are a government of laws and not of men. Yet without great men, including Adams who said that, we would not have the laws that provide the framework for our greatness. Today, the laws that shape our contemporary society, civil rights, the environment, the social safety net, Head Start, and college loans were in large measure the result of the great society and Linda Johnson. Hundreds of thousands of words have been written about Johnson. Recently, the movie Selma reignited debate about Johnson's role in the movement toward civil rights. But Johnson, like all presidents, was a flesh-and-blood human being. And while we may understand and or debate the history of his presidency, my guest, Joseph Califano, Jr., gives us a look inside the man. Joe Califano, Jr. served as Lyndon Johnson's top White House domestic policy aide and as U.S. Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. He is the founder of the National Center for Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. He's the author of numerous books, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about the triumph and tragedy of Lyndon Johnson, The White House Years, a personal memoir by President Johnson's top domestic advisor, Joe Califano. Welcome back to the program. Well, it's very nice to be uh, on the show with you, Jeff. Delight to have you here. One of the things that you can't help think about, Johnson, is Johnson today. Imagine Johnson in a world where everything is on 24-7, where he could email and text and do all the things we do today, 24-7. It would be a pretty remarkable Lyndon Johnson. Well, you sure. I mean, I, God knows if, <laughs> if he had a cell phone, I think I'd, I think I'd probably slept an average of five or six hours a night for three and a half years. But I, with him, I think there would have been no sleep. But, I mean, he, you know, the, the, the phone was one of his chosen instruments, and he, <clears throat> he just constantly tried to run you down on it. I mean, he... I went the first week I went to work for him. Uh, I had this. I had a large office because I always had a lot of meetings with the cabinet officers and others to prepare these legislative programs. And I had my own bathroom. And he called at eight in the morning, and my secretary said, uh, "Johnson and oh, Johnson had the, the phone, the, what we call the POTUS line, President of the United States. It just rang, not intermittently. It's a, it was a constant ring until you picked it up." He always made you feel that you hadn't picked it up soon enough. And he called. My secretary said, he's, he's in the bathroom, Mr. President. The president said, isn't there a phone in there? And she said, no. And he said, put a phone in there. Hung up. I came out. I said, look, forget about that. The next morning, he called at the very same time. I was in the very same place. He said, I told you to put a phone in there. I want a phone in that bathroom this morning. And by the time I got out of the bathroom... There were two Army Signal Corps guys standing in my office with the equipment <laughs> to put the phone in, and the phone was in there within an hour. <laughs> that was that was Johnson. I mean, you know, you've got to be there. Talk a little bit about that and what he really accomplished by that, about always being on the phone, working the levers of power, talking to people. Talk a little bit about that as, as a style of governing. Well, you know, he... he <clears throat> He was very conscious that he had a limited amount of time and that he was spending his political capital, as you know, and he was elected by, the, at that point, the greatest landslide in the history of the country, 61 to 39 percent. And and he uh, he was constantly working. You know, he give me an example. The, the day after the 64 election, he's on the phone with Everett Dirksen, the Republican minority leader, and Dirksen says to him, uh, 
he, he wanted, he, you know, congratulating him on a wonderful victory. And Johnson said, I would not have wanted to be here if you aren't going to be the minority leader. And Dirksen said, well, I'm just going to tell you, in case you're going to want to have a meeting of the leadership, I have to have an operation. And uh, Johnson said, uh, you have your operation. Where are you going to have it, Everett? And Dirksen says, uh, at Walter Reed. Johnson said, isn't that wonderful? Uh, you and I can go to Walter Reed or the Navy Hospital and uh, and have all our health care taken care of. You know, we can do that for all the seniors in this country if we just pass Medicare. And Eric says, oh, now, Mr. Pre- now, Mr. President, Johnson, before he can get through that, Johnson says, and Everett, I really i am going to need you because I'm going to have a Voting Rights Act this year. And Everett Derrick said, oh, I can't go with you on that, Mr. President, I can't. He said, I need, I need you to break this filibuster. He said, oh, I just can't. And Johnson says, Everett, let me tell you something. You come with me on this Voting Rights Act, and 200 years from now, there will only be two people from the state of Illinois that anyone will remember, Abraham Lincoln and Everett Dirksen. It was constant, constant. You listen to the tapes, and they're all available for people to listen to online. And there's virtually no small talk. He's always trying to get somebody to do vote for something or against something or roll back a price or start a jobs program. It was work, work, work. Was there a grand strategy always at play with Johnson, or was this a series, an endless loop of tactics that he engaged in? No, he had a grand strategy. He knew, you know, he knew what he wanted to do. He knew he wanted to deal with poverty and civil rights. And, he, he, you know, remember, when he was first elected to Congress in 1928, I'm sorry, 1938, 30, 1938, he he, there was no running water and there was no electricity in the hill country where he grew up in Texas. So he, 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 he and, and he also had taught kids in Catula, Texas, uh, Mexican kids uh, who were terribly poor. And he used to say, you, you, you look at, look in the eyes of those kids and you see they, they know they're hated just because of the color of their skin. But they don't want, know why anybody would hate them for that reason, and you want to do something about it. He had a, his, his. He was basically the overall strategy was was basically I'm going to give a hand up to people so they can stand on their own two feet. First, we're going to get the economy going full blast. That'll take care of 75 percent of the people in this country. Then those that can stand on their own two feet, if they only he used to say get the help. Most of us get from our mommies and daddies, health care, education, um, um, an opportunity to get a job, not be discriminated against when you apply for a job. And then there are some people who can't take care of themselves or need just need help, like the, the old, for which it was Medicare and what have you, uh, and the disabled, uh, which he ultimately covered with Medicare. And we need to provide housing and we need to provide them with health care and, and what have you. So there was a grand strategy, which was in, in totality the great society, which he realized incidentally was not, was not written in stone. He knew there'd have to be changes over time as, as conditions change. 
To what extent do you think Johnson's presidency and his legislative accomplishments were different by virtue of the way he became president? Had he been elected in his own right, say, in 1960, had he won the nomination and been elected, would he have been a different president? I'm not. I I think he would have been the same president, uh, uh, Jeff. But I I think I think he he uh, you know he, he did. He was an opportunist, and that's very important in politics and in governing. And, and in the best sense of the word, and he used the Kennedy assassination to help get his programs through. There's no question about that. The book in the in the uh, has an attachment. I, I, it has the full text of a memo that he got from Eisenhower. He called Eisenhower on the flight back from uh, Texas to Washington after Kennedy was killed. And he said, will you come down tomorrow and talk to me? And I said, I'll come down, but I'll do, uh, let me do a memo for you. And he did a memo, and the memo said, you've got to get the economy going, you do this and do this and what have you. But Johnson, you know, knew, knew the power of that Kennedy assassination, and he used it. I mean, he said, on the Civil Rights Act of 64, he said, this is something we can do for John Kennedy and we should do it for him. Washington, D.C. had been trying to have a cultural center for a couple of decades, but Congress wouldn't fund it. And they didn't fund it because uh, D.C. was a black city by then. And Johnson, in January of 64, before the State of the Union even, he, he sent a bill up to Congress and said, look, for John K., he got it done in two weeks. Let's do this for the president and have it there so we can start on it and build it. He knew he, he used that assassination. So that was that was absolutely hell. He, he used it to get his great society, pieces of it, enacted at various points. What personal price did he pay for that? He was always frustrated by the fact that he thought people didn't like him enough. In fact, I can't remember who it was that, that said to him, Mr. President, you're simply not that likable. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, he was, he, he, look, he, he was, he's, he's a big Texan. He wore 10 gallon hats. Uh, he was a great rock and tour. Uh, he had big ears. Uh, his nose stuck out. And, you know, he was, it was more, he was easy to caricature and then, it, then, then to, to portraiture, if you will. And so we, 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 he did get caricatured a lot. Secondly, and he was sensitive to this. I mean, he didn't, you know, Kennedy had all the social graces of Harvard and the Ivy League and Boston and being at the top of society. Uh, Johnson grew up a poor kid and had a very hard scrabble life uh, in the Hill Country. And uh, so he, he was conscious of that. But, you know, uh, he was... He was an incredible psychologist. I mean, he really knew the jugular of people. He knew how to get people to do something. He knew what you had to say to somebody to make, you know, I'll give you an example. And that wasn't just Congress. He had a, uh, he, 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 we, we became, it became clear to us that the best way to get people in jobs, and get the hardcore unemployed, was for the businesses to train them. So he had, he had about 20 or 25 executives around the cabinet table one Saturday afternoon for lunch. 
and he, he, he talked to them about it. He wanted these businessmen to form an alliance, and he wanted each of them to start hiring the hardcore and employed. That meant they'd have to probably do it in some education and clean up their health and what have you, and to really do it. And he revved up and revved up and how important it was. Uh, and he got the head of McDonnell Douglas got so turned on by this. He said, Mr. Pre and he said, I want commitments. I want commitments to for a specific number of people you're each going to hire. And the head of McDonnell Douglas says, Mr. President, I commit, I commit. And Johnson kind of looked down the table and said, you committed when you took the first bite of my steak. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, he that was LBJ. And, uh, and, and, and he also knew, you know, when he had to be tough, I mean, we... We lost a. We lost a. You know, we, we had to get the debt limit increased to have enough funds for the, some of the great society programs, and we lost the vote on the debt limit increase. We lost it because a handful of liberals, liberal Democrats, voted against it because they opposed the war in Vietnam and they said the war in Vietnam was taking funds away from the poor and from public housing and other things. And we had we had a meeting right after that, and Johnson you know, had to turn that vote around. And we went through congressman by congressman, and one of them was the congressman from Westchester, a very wealthy suburb of outside of New York. Uh, and uh, Johnson said, "Call him up, and you tell him he doesn't think we have enough money for public housing. Tell him we have plenty of money for public housing." In fact, we're going to put the biggest damn public housing project in the history of the country right in the middle of his fancy Westchester district. And I did. Of course, he, he changed his vote. <laughs> he, 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 knew, he knew how to do those things. Uh, you know, Senator Muskie, the senator from Maine, we had a pro program called Model Cities. We're going to rebuild ghettos in the major cities. And Muskie was the chair of the committee that had the bill, and they, we couldn't get, he couldn't get the bill out. And, uh, and I said, you know, I said, Mr. President, he said, okay, you got to get Muskie. I said, well, I, mean, I can't, I'm having trouble. And, and I said, you know, one of the problems is uh, there's, there's not a city in the state of Maine eligible for this program. Muskie doesn't have a city up there. And Johnson says, yes, he does. And I said, what one, Mr. President? He said, anyone he wants. You know, that, that, that was LBJ. Could that kind of governing exist today in in our more transparent information obsessed world yes i th i think it could i think i think you'd have to be uh you have to be much more uh, uh you have to do much more television if you will much more of the electronic media you have to use all of it but i yes i think it could i mean i think uh sure a lot of the back alley stuff, so to speak, would be would be tougher to do. And Johnson suffered from that. You know, you mentioned in the beginning that the way people looked at him, sort of a wheeler dealer. Well, some of the we you hit on a very important point, Jeff. One of the, some of the wheeling dealing that was most effective was the kind of stuff that uh, would get you, you know, would get you characterized as oh, he's just a wheeler dealer, uh, even though that some of that was exactly what was necessary to get people to vote for things. You know, when Frank Church went to the president, <clears throat> Frank Church was talking to the president about the war in Vietnam, and he kept citing, he said, Walter Lippmann, who was the great 
the greatest columnist of that era, Walter Lippmann says you ought to do this, and Walter Lippmann says you ought to do that, and Walter Lippmann says, Johnson finally turned to church. He said, Frank, the next time you want a dam on the Snake River, you call Walter Lippmann for it. There's still there's still plenty of that today, Jeff. It's, inter- uh, it's interesting, though, that with all the wheeling and dealing that went on, it was very different than what we see today which is about money. Johnson, in fact, was very careful about money raising in the White House. Oh, yeah. I mean, I told the story in the, in the book. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> money is a much more important factor today than it was then. It's always a fact, always been a fact. We, somebody got a substantial grant, uh, and we were sitting around in the Oval Office one night, and, he, and, and uh, which Johnson would occasionally do. He worked it every night uh, and said... Uh, you know, I just got, I think it was $50,000 or something from, from somebody. And John said, where? He, he said, yes. He said, get up. And we all get up. It was Cliff Carter, the, and the head of the Democratic National Committee. And we walk over to the north portico of the White House. And Johnson points out, he said, you see that? And it, he said, Lafayette Park. He said, no, no, not Lafayette Park. Just on that far corner. He said, the Hay Adams Hotel, and he turns to Carter, he said, you know why they built the Hay Adams Hotel? He said, they built the Hay Adams Hotel so that people like you could get political contributions over there. You cannot get them legally on federal property. Uh, he was very sensitive about that. You know, and he was very, he knew the uh, that, that the money was going to be a hell of a problem. Uh, in 1967, Johnson proposed public financing of presidential campaigns and disclosure of contributions. But he was worried about it. And let me just, this, this is exactly what he said then. More and more men and women of limited means may refrain from running for public office. Private wealth increasingly becomes an artificial and unrealistic arbiter of qualifications, and the source of public leadership is severely narrowed. The necessity of acquiring substantial funds to finance campaigns diverts a candidate's attention from his public obligations and detracts from his energetic exposition of the issues. And just look at what's going on now. I mean, Hillary Clinton and that array of Republican candidates are all scrambling for money. They're all traveling all over the country to raise money uh, because we're going to have a campaign that could be a billion and a half on each side. Can you imagine that we we could we might even spend three billion dollars on the presidential campaign? That's horrendous. Talk a little bit because it is certainly, uh, as you know, and you've commented on it, been in the news a lot lately, particularly since Selma. Johnson's commitment to civil rights and really his history. Again, coming back to what you talked about before his upbringing in Texas, where he came from, and how his attitudes about it evolved. Well, you know, it's interesting. He did he, he did vote often with the Southern senators uh, when he was first in the Senate. But in 1957, he was able to get a civil rights bill passed. Uh, it wasn't a strong bill, but he got it passed. And uh, people would say, well, and then when he became president, I mean, he passed three bills that nobody thought would would be possible to pass. The Civil Rights Act of 64 that prohibited discrimination in public accommodations and employment. The 
Voting Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act. And, you know, people say, well, you know, you did this in the Senate, and and he'd say, you know, uh, I have been given a chance to correct the mistakes I made. And I took that chance, and I'm doing something about it. And he said to me once, and he said, if you ever get that chance, you do it. You correct what you do. So that was one. Number two, in terms of voting of all these bills, I mean, he was he was so committed. He thought the Voting Rights Act was the most important law passed in his presidency. And, in the, and he was a partner with Martin Luther King on that. Uh, they, 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 they talked about it. Uh, Johnson urged King to find the worst place in the country. He said, look, Martin, he calls John King in early 25th, early, sorry, early 1965, January 15th. You can listen to it on the LBJ website, on the LBJ library website. And he says, Dr. King, uh, to help me get this bill passed, you can make a contribution. You find the worst place in Alabama or Mississippi or Louisiana or South Carolina, and you uh, go down there where, where a Negro has to recite the Constitution to get registered to vote and a white doesn't. And you go down there and you get the leaders, to, your leaders to go down there. And you get it on radio and you get it on television and you get it in the pulpits and you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until finally a guy that does nothing but drive a tractor will say, uh, it's not fair. It's not fair. And that'll help me shove through Congress what I'm going to send up to them. Uh, the fair, fair housing bill came. When King was assassinated, we had great difficulty getting that bill out of Congress. And the day after King's assassination, after meeting with the black leaders, the president said to me, uh, we're going to get our, we're going to get something out of this awful tragedy. We're going to get our fair housing bill. And he sent a letter to the speaker, and he sent a handwritten note to the minority leader, Jerry Ford, and he got in touch with them, and we got our fair housing bill. Uh, his commitment was total to civil rights as it was to eliminating poverty. Of course, it was also reflective of his appointments, appointing Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court and, and Robert Weaver, the first black cabinet secretary. Absolutely. And, you know, so put the first black on the Federal Reserve Board, and that was a wonderful uh, point. That was another classic Johnson example. LBJ, Andrew Brimmer was an economist. He'd been in the Commerce Department, a very brilliant Harvard-educated and uh, black. He happened to be born in Louisiana. And uh, Johnson calls Russell Long, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which had to confirm any uh, nominee to the Federal Reserve Board, to the White House. Sits down with Russell Long. And we're sitting there. And Russell Long was totally opposed to all the civil rights laws and much of the great society. And Johnson says, Russell... I got a man, I got to, I got somebody to fill a vacancy on the Federal Reserve Board, and he went to Harvard and he did this and he did that and all this stuff. And he's from Louisiana, and you're from Louisiana. I want you to introduce him to the committee. And Russell says, oh, absolutely, Mr. President. Sure, Mr. President. And Johnson hands him this white manila folder. And when you open it, the first thing is a picture of black 
picture and almost gags. And Johnson says, I'm, I'm so glad you're going to do this, Russell. So, and Russell says, I'll do it. As president, I'll do it. You know, you have to do things like that. And you, and you have to take the time to do things like that. Uh, so, yeah, sure, he made lots of appointments. How did Johnson see partisan politics? It's hard to to imagine the context in light of the way we view partisanship today. <clears throat> well, there were, sure, there were partisan politics. But you have to remember, Johnson could not pass the Great Society laws without Republicans because the Southerners who controlled the committees in the Senate and the House, with one or two exceptions, were not only opposed to the civil rights laws, they were opposed to the spending and the Great Society programs, and they were opposed to the programs. So he needed a significant number of Republicans on every bill, and he worked them hard. And, you know, he used to say to us, you, 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 you give as much attention and accord as much respect to the minority leader, Senator Dirksen, in the Senate and the minority leader, uh, Jerry Ford, in the House, as you do to Mike Mansfield, the Democratic majority leader, and Speaker McCormick, the Speaker. And we did. And, uh, and, and uh, it was necessary. So he was constantly crossing the aisle. Fritz Mondale, a senator from Minnesota, said uh, in New York a few couple of years ago, every time he called President Johnson with an idea for a bill, the first thing President Johnson said to him, how can we make this a bipartisan thing? How can we get Republicans to support it? Uh, and he had to, he, you know, A, he had no choice, but B, he knew it was important. He knew when we passed Medicare and Medicaid, we had to have a significant number of Republicans. Why? Because Medicaid is partly run by the states, and he used to say, if we don't get them aboard, uh, and get them invested in the bill. Uh, they'll kill us in the appropriations committees. The Republican governors will will will, will not go for Medicaid, and uh, and and their big corporate executives won't support it. This was all. This was all. You know, he he understood the need for that, and he did the things he had to do to get his bills passed. Joseph Califano Jr. The book is The Triumph and Tragedy of Lyndon Johnson, The White House Years. So much to talk about. I thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you very much. And I loved uh, loved talking to you, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.